0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring.
0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 227, Reformation Parliament. Next week, everybody, we will start an Anne Boleyn Bonanza, as well as continuing with the story of the English Reformation and the break with Rome, of course. So, there will be prizes and debates, all wildly exciting. There will also be a special competition and prize draw for the very special people, i.e. the members of the History of England, this will be all about who was responsible for Anne's execution and will be towards the end of October. Anyway, just thought I would communicate my mounting excitement or will be revealed next week. Oh, and we'll have two special guests to boot. Now then, last week Wolsey fell with a crash and Henry's hope of a divorce seemed to have fallen with him. We have spoken at some length just a few weeks ago about the state of the late medieval church. So what was the situation by the time we get to 1529, 1532, and the Reformation Parliament gets into full swing. I have happily agreed with the latest orthodoxy that actually the late medieval church was much better fettled than the last 500 years of Protestant trash talk might suggest, but pointed out that, like it or not, the church did also have multiple areas where it was indeed vulnerable. What this meant was that there is a deal of anti-clericalism around. Now it's easy to dismiss this, as indeed some have, as a purely negative thing, defined by a tearing down of the walls of the poor old beast and feeding on its flesh. But it was for also for many a thrilling liberation, whether England's freedom to control her own observances, or the chance to read the Word of God for yourself, or being freed from the terrors of purgatory. One of the pieces of evidence that historians have used to understand the spread of the new ideas and evangelicalism is that of wills. Traditionalists and evangelicals used very different formulae for wills. So the thinking goes that if you look at wills for that first generation that lived under the Reformation Parliament and saw the break with Rome, it gives some idea of the early spread of evangelical observance. These are people, remember, who will have lived all their lives under the traditional religion, and by the end of Henry's reign, still live in an evolving theology that owes a lot more to Catholicism than it does to Lutheranism. The analysis of those wills shows a lot of regional variation. In some parts of the country, Devon and Cornwall for example, there are almost no wills that follow the new formula. There are other parts of the country, Kent, London, East Anglia, where up to a third of wills are in a Protestant formula. Port towns were often more evangelical, with sailors and merchants bringing with them new ideas and with the import of heretical texts. In some areas, such as Kent, the church hierarchy themselves quickly became officially part of the Reformation, especially when Cranmer becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. And so their early conversion in Kent owed something to the top down approach from the clergy themselves. In other areas, such as Norfolk, it's much more bottom up, so the Bishop of Norwich was firmly traditionalist, so the high proportion of evangelicals must have come from a spread of the new ideas from person to person and community to community. Norfolk had traditionally been an area strung in Lollardy, which must have made a contribution to that spread. Conversely, in the north, as Henry would find out, the new ideas had made little headway as yet. Having said all that, there can be equally little doubt that the idea of getting their hands on the riches of the church drove many courtiers. The Dukes of Norfolk and the Duke of Suffolk was not shy about saying so. And it was in the House of Commons that all the resentments about the abuses and failures of the church would find expression, and here also whether people stood to gain the most from the church's wealth. Henry used this anti-clerical feeling for his own benefit. First of all, to just put pressure on the Pope to give him what he wanted as though there was this huge body of water building up, pressure pushing against the dam. And Henry would turn to the Pope and say, hey Pope, I'm the only bloke holding this dam in place. Don't make me open the sluice gates. Help me out. Give me that divorce. But as soon as Parliament opened in 1529, the Commons petitioned the King with a long list of grievances against the Church, their temporal possessions, their legal immunities, the state of monasticism. They asked the king to demand of the spiritual lords that they justify their position and that of the church. Well, when this got to the lords in Parliament, they were not happy bunnies. The lords, of course, had many bishops and abbots as part of his membership. Apparently, they, quote, grunted and frowned. As well they might. It was left to Bishop John Fisher to voice clerical opposition to the outrageous impertinence of the laity daring to question the clergy. These were matters for convocation, for the church, not for parliament. Keep your collective noses out of our affairs. It'll be sorted when it's sorted. These are all tired old accusations. Whatever. Fisher in this showed both his strengths and his weaknesses, his courage and conviction, his arrogance and lack of political skills. There were few that stood with him at this point, it's quite possible, though, that his clerical colleagues were more reticent not because they were chicken, but because they saw in this a storm in a teacup, and that it was best not to raise the heat any more than was necessary. And in fact, Fisher's dark references to heresy in Bohemia and a lack of faith in the Commons led to an outraged official complaint from the Commons to the King, and Fisher was forced to climb down. Not much came out of the first year of the Reformation Parliament. There were three acts essentially against clerics guilty of non residence pluralism, holding land in farm or engaging in commerce. Small beer maybe. And some historians argue from this that it's evidence that Henry just didn't have a clue about what he was doing. But there is a principle here that made Fisher boil with rage. The laity had established the principle of enacting legislation to regulate the church rather than that regulation coming from the convocation of the church. This is actually a very big reduction in clerical legal privilege, so it's far from irrelevant. It might be worthwhile also adding a corrective about Henry's own theology. Reforming church practice, establishing royal authority was one thing, but don't think Henry was an evangelical. In 1530, he did convene a group of bishops, and as a result he ordered seven heretical works to be banned, including amongst them Tyndale's translation of the New Testament in English. However, even at this early stage, Henry was an advocate for the English Bible. But the same group had reacted with chin-wobbling horror, so he compromised. He ordered that the clergy should have access to the Bible in English, and that they should learn it. So it's an interesting move, and it should be seen as part of Henry's journey towards royal supremacy. In this meeting, for example, Henry claimed a duty to give the word of God to his people. Now that's a big thing, that's entirely new. For English kings, this is unique. The next couple of years then, until we get to the excitements of 1532, have been seen by many as years of drift or stalemate. Now, if you're a believer in the great Thomas Cromwell theory, that actually all Henry VIII was really good at was hunting and chasing women and writing the odd song here or there... You characterise this period as Henry scrabbling around desperately in that cupboard under the stairs, chucking out old tennis rackets and plumbing equipment behind him as he searched desperately for a strategy. Alternatively, you see these years as a period where Henry develops his thoughts about the royal supremacy, where he drives a continual battering of the Pope, and eventually comes to realise that despite his own deep desire for reconciliation with the Pope, and the Pope's almost as desperate attempts to avoid doing something irrevocable, Henry realises that his desires and those of the Pope are simply incompatible. That Whatever he does, he will not get his divorce this way. That Catherine's appeal will be heard in Rome, and Catherine's appeal will be upheld, and he will be humiliated. Which means that there is but one solution. And that one solution is the nuclear option, the big red button. The glass will have to be broken, and the button pressed. What's for sure is that Henry is everywhere driving both strategy and activity, with two inadequate servants in Norfolk and Suffolk feebly trying to keep up before Thomas Cromwell arrives. You can see the split in Henry's mind in his pursuit of the papal curia. Mainly he argues that, OK, the case needs to be heard, but it should be heard in England, where Henry is pretty convinced that the odd well-aimed kick at the relevant well-positioned backside should soon see him right. But meanwhile, what comes out in his conversation is a growing belief that he's discovered a truth, that England is an empire, that England has rights which the Pope is usurping, and that the Pope should not be ruling on this at all. From there, it will be a small step to a complete break with the Pope. In 1530, for example, he says... For the king is absolute emperor and pope in his kingdom. This he backed up with a really rather remarkable attack on the clergy. We have mentioned before primunary, the law that prevented any from working with a foreign power. Late in 1530, he accused the entire clergy of primunary in an attempt to get them to admit that they would never from this point on appeal to Rome for judgments over his head, over the head of the king this looked like the moment, the big one, where Henry would finally begin a move towards total separation from Rome. But in fact, in January 1531, he steps off a bit. The clergy buy him off. They sue for his pardon and hand over 100,000 quid to sweeten the deal. In so doing, they might be admitting to a frankly daft accusation, but they'd not conceded the principle of the right to appeal to Rome. Henry accepted this, Curiously, why did he accept that at this point, had he lost his nerve? But then he came right back and demanded that a clause be added to the clergy's submission describing him as, quote, protector and only supreme head of the English church, along with some other clauses that essentially redefine the king as both pope and king. So having stepped back, he stepped forward again. This time the church fought back with the weapons of sneakiness and visited Mr Weasel for advice on the use of the English language. So many of the claims that Henry was asking for were lost and qualified in the language and to the supreme head statement was added the words as far as the laws of Christ allows, which must be some of the finest of Mr Weasel's words. Henry can't have missed this. Either he was confident he could just ignore those when the moment came to challenge or again Maybe once again he lost his nerve with the enormity of what he was trying to do and breaking all those hundreds and hundreds of years of tradition. It's difficult to tell. In this gap, for example, some would say that Anne Boleyn was there pushing him forward when he stepped back. He was certainly giving mixed messages. So while this warfare was being fought, in February 1531, he had a chat to a papal nuncio and said to him in a friendly sort of way, I can assure you, there was never a question of any measure that could affect his holiness. I have always upheld the authority of the church in this my kingdom, fully intend to do so in the future. Well, golly, have you though, the nuncier might have said, but either this is just a shameless piece of soft soaping, whatever that slightly odd expression means, or again, it indicates that Henry had not yet crossed the Rubicon. He still hoped against hope in 1531 that Clement would fold still hoped his threats could measure up against the cold, ever-present, relentless and crucially close-by threats of the Emperor Charles V. Early in 1532, Henry made probably his last direct appeal to Rome, demanding they step back from upholding Catherine's appeal and refer the judgment back to England. It's also worth noting there is serious resistance amongst the clergy to what Henry was doing, he received three clear and unequivocal objections. From Bishop Tunstall of Durham, from the assembled clergy of York and Durham and from the clergy of Canterbury. And not just from the clergy, but also his own nobility. Twice in 1530, he asked a gathering of notables at court whether he should just go ahead and order the English clergy to rule on his divorce. Twice, he got a no as an answer. The idea of the royal supremacy was far too novel and radical for most of his subjects. The point I'm trying to make is that it's easy to get the impression that Henry has no opponents, the only thing stopping him is he himself. Well, that's by no means true. So, meanwhile, what was going on back on the home range? Well, I'm glad you asked me that. If Anne was the hidden object of Henry's desire in the 1520s, By 1530, it was right out there, a flaming bonfire of love and passion. More and more until the momentous days of 1532 and began to look like a queen-in-waiting. In December 1529, as we've said, the cake of the Boleyns' faction rise to power was duly iced and covered with those little sparkly things, hundreds and thousands of them. Thomas Boleyn became Earl of Wiltshire and Earl of Ormond. George Boleyn became Viscount Rochford. Wiltshire also became Lord Privy Seal, the third-ranking officer of state. As this happened, there was hell on earth going on between Catherine, Henry and Anne. It sounds utterly hideous. The kind of hideous that makes me want to retire to bed, cover myself with a nice warm duvet and moan to myself gently. If you are not comfortable with conflict and confrontation, turn away now. The misery of both Catherine and Anne is easy to understand, I think, Catherine was being forced from her rightful place, the place for which she had been prepared all her life by a mistress she utterly detested and despised in defiance of all the things she held most dear, her honour and public reputation, her beliefs and her country and maybe even her feelings for Henry. The smell of burning Martha and deeply felt pain must have filled every room she entered. Meanwhile, it's probably not that easy for Anne either. All that she has going for her at the end of the day when all said and done is the king's attraction for her. Now, we all know what happened next, but she didn't. She must have been in a continual pother that at any moment the king would collapse from the enormity of what he was trying to do in the face of growing opposition and all the demands of tradition. At any time, he might wake up and decide, hmm, actually, Anne isn't that great. After all, she's a bit lippy. And he could just find himself another mistress, take back Catherine... Let the succession sort itself out, along with the added benefit that he could have sex. And for Anne, the clock was ticking. It's been three years already, and 30, she's not getting any younger. Plus, I have to admit to even a smidgen of sympathy for Henry. OK, don't shout at me, just a smidgen. Small, feeble, quaking, miserable bit of sympathy no bigger than a man's hand. After all, the situation is largely of his own making. But caught between burning martyr and desperation just can't have been easy either. Anyway, let me give you a flavour. Snippets of the personal stuff float down to us. Remember that Eustace Chapuis, the Emperor's ambassador, is now in town. The vast majority of incidents come from his pen, and he's deeply prejudiced in favour of Catherine. But it is impossible to ignore him, because he's also reasonably accurate where corroboration is available, he's insightful and well capable and of analysis. Plus, his is the only continuous narrative. For his role in the sources and historiography of Anne, there will be a Shedcast next week for members, by the way. It's December 1529. The Berlins have been promoted. Catherine and Henry are having dinner. And Catherine turns on Henry and has a hack at him for being unkind to her and neglecting her. Henry's struck back with the old works-really-important-at-the-moment line, you know, trying to get divorced from you. And anyway, if it didn't go his way, he would, quote, "'Denounce the Pope as a heretic and marry whom he pleased.' Catherine derided his arguments, poured scorn on them, and Henry flounced out. Never mind. He'd go to Anne, lay his woolly head on her pretty duckies, and Anne would soothe his damaged ego. Not a bit of it.
1: "'Did I not tell you that whenever you disputed with the Queen, "'she was sure to have the upper hand? "'I see that some fine morning you will succumb to her reasoning, "'and that you'll cast me off.' I have been waiting long and might in the meanwhile have contracted some advantageous marriage out of which I may have had issue, which is the greatest consolation in this world. But alas, farewell to my time and youth spent to no purpose at all.
0: This is a theme, actually. During 1530, Anne would again remind Henry of her wasted youth and the reputation she had risked all on his behalf. But by 1531, Henry and Anne were so public about their relationship that a stream of horrified correspondence left Chappie's pen. Anne was with Henry now on the summer progress as well, as during the rest of the year, hunting with him, riding with him, dancing. Their love was open and obvious, flaunted in front of the court and ambassadors. On one occasion Henry had her up riding pillion behind him on his horse, and there was no maiden aunt in the world whose chin would not have wobbled more in outrage than the chins of those ambassadors. Their outrage, though, turned to laughter, when overcome with the pressures and delays of the great matter, Anne threatened to leave Henry, and Henry was forced to beg Wiltshire to intercede on his behalf with his daughter with tears in his eyes. This was something kings were just not forced to do. Francis I would have been doubled up with incredulous mockery. But then Francis didn't have Anne to deal with. Let me not give the wrong impression about this. Even Chapuis was forced to accept that here was a genuinely vibrant relationship. The quarrels and storms came, but then even he had to admit that they were just lovers' tiffs. Reporting on one quarrel, when the sun broke through, he wrote, As happens generally in such cases, their love will be greater than before. We are not reliant solely on Chapuis for all this, incidentally. All of Europe shuddered at the horror of what was going on, the wanton destruction and desecration of all the proprietors and social norms. The Venetian ambassador reported warmly of the king's qualities, but then went on to say... There is now living with him a young woman of noble birth, though many say of bad character, whose will is law to him. This, then, is the humiliation that Catherine was forced to suffer and every fibre of her being and instinct will have rebelled. But it got worse. In the summer of 1531, Anne and Henry took off and left the Queen and carried on hunting and playing together near Windsor. Depressed, Catherine decided that she and her daughter Mary should have some fun too, and should visit the sites near Windsor. Henry had decided that this was the moment. He forbade Catherine to visit, and he ordered her to go and live at the Moor, a palace in Hertfordshire. Meanwhile, he ordered Mary, however, to go to Richmond, separated from her mother. It's brutal. Catherine would never see her daughter again. There was a little more prevarication, but by November 1531, Catherine was also excluded from public ceremonies as Queen. Anne began to act and look more and more as though she was the Queen. She began to acquire the household reminiscent of a Queen as well, actually. And all the while, the King showered her with an extraordinary amount of money and gifts. So, what do we think of this? Obviously, pretty hideous for Catherine, and Henry, well, I mean, what a great guy. But what of Anne? It doesn't make her look brilliant either. It kind of fits in with a the cuckoo theory. I don't know if it makes it any better, but just to complete the picture, it's worth remembering that pressure that both Anne and Henry were under constantly, from church and even behind hands at court, because resistance grew as Henry and Anne became more flagrant. The king had three inner councillors still, Norfolk, Suffolk, Wiltshire. Norfolk was probably lukewarm towards Anne, despite his family connection with her, he complained that Anne had become arrogant and her behaviour unbearable. It said she used words that should not have been used to a dog. But then, Norfolk would do pretty much anything to cling to power. Suffolk, meanwhile, Henry's oldest friend, to his credit, showed a little bit more backbone. His wife, Mary, the King's sister, of course, appears to have been resolutely and implacably opposed to Anne. And maybe this gave Suffolk a bit more latitude, a bit more courage and a bit more backbone. But he kind of came out for Catherine. On one occasion, he said to the king that Queen Catherine held only two things more important to her than the king. Now, Henry would have been mentally slapping his mate on the back and waiting for the gratification he assumed that he would hear. Namely, that Catherine, oh, she held the Pope and the Emperor to be much more important than him, Henry, which would back up Henry's feelings that Catherine was being disloyal. But Suffolk did not deliver. He replied instead that Catherine would obey her God and her conscience first. Henry was furious. Suffolk was rusticated or at least made himself scarce around court for a while. So really, amongst those three inner counsellors, Henry really only had Wiltshire to back him up with any enthusiasm, since he was, of course, Anne Boleyn's dad. Suffolk wasn't alone in his growing support for Catherine, there was quite a large, influential group growing up around her. So, Nicholas Carew, a courtier previously Anne's client, swapped over to Catherine's side. Norfolk's wife, who you'd have expected to have supported anyone who annoyed her husband, essentially, was banished from court for her negative comments about Anne. And Henry's notables, as we've seen, consistently refused as a group back the idea of marriage to Anne when he asked for their advice. Anne's response was fire and fight in a situation that would have broken many. At one stage she adopted the motto let them grumble this is how it's going to be. She played politics with the skill of the best courtier. With her influence she had another courtier, a man very close to the king for many years called Henry Guildford, removed from his post in the privy chamber and from court. We've seen that she would stand up to the king, that she wasn't afraid to make him dance to her tune. So, at one point in 1530, beset by the problems he was facing, Henry irritably reminded her of just how many enemies she'd made him. She conceded not one inch.
1: That matters not, for it was foretold in ancient prophecies that at this time a queen shall be burnt. But even if I were to suffer a thousand deaths, my love for you would not abate one jot.
0: The question is... How far Anne's steel was inserted into Henry's backbone. How far the divorce can be attributed to Anne and the Berlin's rather than Henry. What's clear is that Anne was not just playing politics and having a good time. She is at very least involved with the divorce and its process and progress. On more than one occasion, diplomats going to and from the papal court, including Stephen Gardiner, were told to call in and speak to Anne. Francis Bryan, as we've seen, addressed letters directly to her from his mission in Rome, though the worst news, he left to Henry to tell her. When Henry ordered the clergy to describe him as the supreme head, she was full of confidence. Chapuis records her as saying that she wished all Spaniards were at the bottom of the sea, that she cared not for the Queen or any of her family, and that she would rather see her hanged than to admit that she was her Queen and Mistress. She was referring to Catherine, of course.
1: Treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
0: Shep, we, of course, takes this as serious evidence that that's exactly what Anne wanted to do. It seems much more likely that she's just sounding off. But it's also clear that the Boleyns were closely involved with Henry. Wiltshire, of course, but also George Boleyn, Rochford, who, for example, was used to represent the king at convocation as they debated the spiritual basis for the supremacy. Central to this is the Berlin advocacy of Thomas Cranmer and his work to gain European university approval for the king's case. And Cranmer put together the so-called Collectanea, the assembly of ancient documents supporting the king's right to be supreme in his own land. Cranmer appears to be very much a Berlin client. We can be confident that Anne would know of and encourage the work and be consulted by her father, but did she drive it? Did she drive the strategy, or was she purely a supporter and encourager and cheerleader? This is much, much more difficult to know. The same doubts apply to a degree to her support for evangelicalism at this stage, though we'll talk much more of the evidence later. There are signs even now that she was actively engaged and supportive of the new thinking. It shows in her support for Hugh Latimer, for example, England's best preacher and clearly evangelical. It was probably Anne who encouraged Henry to protect him from persecution by his boss, William Wareham, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And she would later make Hugh Latimer her own almoner. But now, it is time. Enter stage left to the cheering of the crowd. The man you've all been waiting for. The one, the only, Thomas Cromwell. Now, you're going to hate me for this but I'm on a bit of a schedule, so I'm going to leave a more detailed description of our Cromers, either to Later or to Shedcasts. So, for the moment, let me give you a brief introduction. So here is, in Cromwell, another man who has divided opinion, almost as much as Anne. For some, Thomas Cromwell is the perfect example of the ruthless, the unscrupulous, the corrupt politician. A brilliant administrator and politician, maybe but a man who acted like a sort of fixer for a mafia boss, executing the king's policies and destroying men far greater than himself. For others, here is an architect of the modern English state, a man with a principal belief in the power and rights of the crown, with a vision of how England could become far greater, far more powerful, plus a genuine believer in evangelicalism. Well, we shall see. A couple of things we should scotch right from the start. Firstly, the Catholic myth that Cromwell rose to power because he sidled up to the king and told him he would make him richer than his wildest dreams by destroying the church and taking its wealth. Upon which Henry said, oh, that sounds like a good idea. Your chief minister. The dates don't work. Cromwell's career follows a gradual upward trajectory which brings him to the King's Council in 1531 well after Henry has given clear indications of how his mind was working as regards the royal supremacy. His work until well into 1533 show an executor, not a maker of policy. It also scotches the second theory that Cromwell is the architect of the break with Rome. He arrives far too late for that. But he might well be the man who delivers it. A quick biopic then. Cromwell was the son of a Putney tradesman, born in 1485. So he's 45 in 1532 when he joins our story, No Spring Chicken, an experienced man. He has a tantalisingly fascinating background, leaving his father when a young man and travelling onto the continent. Famously, he described himself to Thomas Cranmer as the ruffian he was in his young days and we can guess there was a significant falling out between father and son. What we know is that he gets advocated in Italy from a rich Frescobaldi family, possibly spends some time in the Netherlands as a clothmaker, and quite possibly works as a mercenary during some of the Italian wars. His is not just the lowly background of a Thomas Wolsey. Wolsey at least brought himself to his eminence through the reasonably standard route of university and the church. Cromwell's background is quite exceptional. Around 1517, he was then back in England and married to one Elizabeth. And in the 1520s, though without any kind of formal training, he became a lawyer in London and no mean slouch at the job either. He does really well. He moved to a better house in Austin Friars in London in 1522. He was at Parliament in 1523 and his jobs were bringing him into contact with Wolsey and other great men of the court. By 1524, he was probably working for Wolsey in his great project to close down 30 small redundant monasteries and use that money to endow education by building Cardinal College. Cromwell was skilled and happy at his job and enthused at seeing the new college grow. His behaviour through Wolsey's fall was impressive. It was impressive firstly for the love and loyalty he showed his master, constantly working for Wolsey's rehabilitation despite the fact that it helped Cromwell's career not one jot, and continuing despite an increasingly whiny Wolsey, until it was clear that he stood absolutely no chance and there was no point any further to his advocacy. Secondly, it was impressive because of the skill with which he avoided sharing Wolsey's fate, so much so that by 1530 he was working for the king. By 1531 he joined the king's council, and his new career was well and truly launched. Like Wolsey, Cromwell had a limitless capacity for hard work, was personally impressive to the point of being overwhelming, and was thoroughly charming when he wanted to be. He had a capacity for friendship and love of family. Clearly, he loved power and the financial rewards that came with it, and was probably every bit as corrupt as Wolsey, or even more so. But unlike Wolsey, he did seem to be completely indifferent to the outward appearance of wealth and power the reality of power was much more important to him. He was a consummate and ruthless politician of that care can be no doubt. Like Woolsey, he was in a completely different social league to the Norfolks and Suffolks of this world, so he was never seen as more than a bureaucrat. He was not part of the social circle of the king's natural companions. Unlike Woolsey, he inherited a king much more savvy in the ways of politics, much older, more experienced much less inclined to sit back enjoy life and leave all the decision-making to his mate Wolsey. Self-avowedly, Henry would not let that situation occur again. There was some famous advice that often gets quoted from Thomas More, apparently to Cromwell. Ever tell the king what he ought to do, but never tell him what he is able to do. If the lion knew his strength, it would be hard for any man to rule him. Cromwell was to break this rule. Cromwell believed the lion should know and should exercise his full strength. But honestly, Cromwell probably didn't have a choice. With Wolsey gone, Henry was free and he was discovering his strength anyway. OK, but the main thing then is that by the time of the third session of the Reformation Parliament in January 1532... Henry and the Berlins had at their disposal a master administrator and politician. They no longer had to rely on the Chinnelands' wonders that were Norfolk and Suffolk. There's no doubt that with Cromwell to support them, the attack on the church, which had started with such energy in 1529 and then faltered in 1530 and again in 1531, now, in 1532, it would start again with renewed vigour and this time it would be driven to a conclusion. Having said that, the start of the thirty-two session didn't go well at all. It was taken up with a rather bad-tempered discussion of the king's feudal rights, which was absolutely not where Henry wanted to be. If it had been a local leaning on his fence, being asked for directions to the royal supremacy, he'd have chewed his bit of straw and replied, well, he wouldn't start from here. But then things got started. Norfolk led a discussion of a philosopher called Saint-Germain saint had argued that clerical powers should be restricted purely to matters of faith and not include matters of, oh, hang on, uh, let me think now, Now, would be a good example, oh yes, what about matrimony? This shook out a few of those who would not follow the king all the way. So one Lord Darcy, for example, growled that his property and the person were entirely at the king's disposal. But from what he had heard and read, he believed that all matrimonial matters were spiritual and fell under ecclesiastical jurisdiction. Now, this was far to funeral territory as far as Henry was concerned, but Cromwell found the blue touchpaper in anti clericalism again. And from that debate came the Incendiary Act, the supplication against the ordinaries. If you're wondering what an ordinary is, it's the ordinary clerics of the realm, the bishops, and their ordinary powers. The supplication was a list of moans and whines by the laity against the clergy. There were things like the ability of the clergy to legislate independently of parliament. There was the old complaint about the use of heresy accusations as a weapon. Come on, they said, it's not fair. In order to avoid being burnt, you have to abjure your heresies, which means admitting to having heresies at all. It's an outrage. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. There were complaints about all the panoply of ecclesiastical fees and charges, complaints about laxity and pluralism, the kind of thing that John Collett had thundered on about in 1512. The normal stuff. The stuff that Fisher would say airily, will get sorted when it got sorted, but out. What's not clear is whether the supplication of the ordinaries was government work, or it was the commons who did it spontaneously, or oh, that actually Cromwell put it together, gave it to the Commons, and the Commons said, yes, yes, that's it, that's what we meant to say. The convocation of the clergy were, of course, horrified. Now, we know where this ends. But initially, at least, their response was pretty uncompromising. In this, Stephen Gardiner, the new Bishop of Winchester now, blotted his copybook with the King. In fact, he blotted his copybook so completely that his book was basically just blot. Because it was he that wrote the response, utterly rejecting the King's claim that all legislation should be given assent by the King that came from convocation. He was the brains, he was the author of the response. And in the ensuing struggle, even William Warham found that he had a backbone and angrily rejected the King's claims. Now Gardiner would later buy his way back into the King's and Anne's favour, but never again would be he entirely trusted by either but all of this was no use. Henry and Cromwell were relentless. Accusations of primuniere were used as threats against people like Warham, threatening legal action if they didn't back down. Henry grandstanded in a way for which he had a genuine talent, that mix of arrogance, self-confidence and genuine charisma. He summoned Parliament and he stood in front of them. He held a copy of the Oath, that the clergy made to Rome and the Pope in his hands, and he brandished it at them. And he said, Well, beloved subjects, we thought that the clergy of our realm had been our subjects wholly, but now we have well perceived that they be but half our subjects, yea, and scarce our subjects. And then, in the face of constant pressure, threats, browbeating, on the 15th of May 1532, the clergy caved and they gave their consent to the royal supremacy. Gone was the clause, as far as the laws of Christ allows. The king was supreme. Now, as it happens, when the upper house of bishops and abbots gave their agreement, most of the key opponents were actually absent. Fisher, for example, was ill. Finally, Thomas More realised that running with the hare and hunting with the hounds was no longer an option. He could no longer stay as chancellor, and he resigned, an action which, of itself, was against all precedence. When the king asked you to serve, you served until he told you to go. The supplication of the ordinaries was part of a programme of pressure on the Pope. In 1532 also, Parliament had passed a law against the passing of annates. The Passing of what, I hear you say? Sounds painful. Ooh, I passed an annate this morning. Annates were in fact fees paid by bishops on their succession and they were then paid over to Rome. The act... Wasn't yet implemented, it was kind of held in suspension. So Henry was threatening the papacy where it hurt them most, in their pocket, threatening to withhold those fees if they didn't play ball. In August 1532, William Warham died. Oddly, most seemed to try and defend a man who, it seems to me, had been a pretty useless defender of the church's privileges. It's clear he didn't agree with what he was forced into. Both from when he finally screwed up his courage to criticise the king in March 1532, and from a speech found among his papers where he drew a parallel between himself and Thomas Becket. Isis Becket would have been unimpressed with Warren's performance. The other person notably absent from all of this was the Pope. Yeah, the Pope. Now, look, we spend a long time talking about the Pope and all the diplomacy and all of that. Never once have we seen the Pope offering the kind of leadership to his own churchmen, his own bishops that Fisher had offered. Clement was so eager to avoid irritating Henry any more than he had to, he completely forgot his responsibility to defend his bishops. Anyway, with Warham's death, Henry immediately appointed Thomas Cranmer to the post of Archbishop of Canterbury on the 1st of October. With deep irony, Henry managed to get Cranmer's appointment ratified by the Pope. Yes, ratified by the Pope. Again, bizarre. Henry... Couldn't break free of the old habit, the old desire for acceptance by the Pope. Cranmer was, as it happens, the last Archbishop of Canterbury to get his pallium from the hands of the Bishop of Rome. And you have to ask, why did Clement do it? Equally oddly, when Cranmer received the pallium from the Pope and was consecrated, he kind of did the equivalent of crossing his fingers so as to excuse himself of all the oaths of obedience that he made to the Pope. It's not a moment he would care to remember, I would guess. It's highly likely that Cromwell saw more clearly than Henry that a break with Rome was now the only possible policy to achieve what he wanted. But, should you think that Henry had given up all hope, a new tack was to be tried in 1532. The plan was that the king would meet with his ally Francis I. The French had what Henry did not. They had two cardinals. Francis had influence with Clement that Henry did not. Surely there was one more chance for the Pope to give Henry what he wanted. So the idea was for Henry and Francis to meet at Boulogne, in a sort of rerun of the Field of the Cloth of Gold. They would make love to each other, and Henry would persuade Francis to fight his corner with the Pope. But there was more. This time, Anne was to go as well. This would be the chance to legitimise the reviled mistress, the reviled concubine, if Francis was to meet with her, the world would see that this match was a possibility. Before that could happen, Anne needed the requisite status. And so she was made Marchioness of Pembroke in a rich ceremony to which all the nobility were dragged, kicking and screaming, including Suffolk. Anne was now a bona fide peer of the land in her own right. Now, there is an interesting little wrinkle in her letters patent. For some reason, her letters patent described how the title would descend with her to her heirs. Fine. But the words lawfully begotten, which were usually there, were left out. So that meant that if Anne had children outside of marriage, those children, bastards though they were, could still inherit. Huh. Now that's interesting. What it might well mean was that even at this very, very late stage, Henry was contemplating the prospect that they might not make it to the blissful state of marriage and that Anne, as a mistress, might have illegitimate children with him. Now, of all the indignities visited on Catherine of Aragon, I'm not sure what the most brutal was. Being separated from her daughter, I guess, would have hurt the most. But this next one definitely lives up there in the competition for top indignity. Either Henry or Anne decided that the vast amount of money spent on jewels for the end was not enough. The Queen's jewels were required to finish it off doesn't seem to be clear who actually instituted this. Some might say one, some say the other. Chapuis, of course, is clear that this was the concubine's handiwork. But either way, Norfolk was sent to request to the jewels from Catherine, a sort of request that had but one answer. The flea with which Catherine sent away Norfolk is probably buzzing in his ear even now, wherever his shades live. She bitterly swore that without a direct order from the king, I will not give them up to a person who is the scandal of Christendom and a disgrace to you. Henry was forced, therefore, to send that direct order, which he did without any trace of embarrassment. The meeting at Boulogne was a success for Henry and indeed for Anne in pretty much every way, though there were two significant absences. Margaret of Angoulême was invited but pleaded illness, which was interpreted as a snub. Suffolk was there, but his wife, Henry's sister, the Princess Mary, was not. And Suffolk's presence was the result only of a personal visit by Henry to the Suffolk's home, and you can imagine what was covered in that interview. Princess Mary would remain an implacable opponent for Anne. However, despite these two small blemishes, no larger than a wen on a sixth finger, it was a great success. Francis proved keen to fight on Henry's behalf with the Pope, so that was good. And on the night of the banquet, Anne made her appearance with six of her ladies, including Mary Carey, her sister. And Anne danced and talked with the King of France. But even more significantly, on the way back to England, which took a month by the way, Anne and Henry slept together. Don't forget then that there is a special Shedcast this week from Steve Cloutier about Thomas Wyatt, poet, courtier, possible Anne Boleyn fancy man, and that it's never too late to support the podcast, otherwise known as me, by becoming a member don't forget to tune in next week when we start our Anne Boleyn Bonanza The Scandal of Christendom debate with special episodes, prizes, debates, votes, possibly quizzes if I can find time to write them. And there'll be a Shedcast next week too on Anne and her reputation through the ages. And I have to tell you, Anne has been kicked around quite a lot. So, good luck everyone and have a great week.